You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, James Chow. It's great being with you again. This is episode twenty. I'm in Hong Kong and have been glued to the news more so than normal in the last couple of days. One of the headlines is the new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which warns that the Paris Agreement that most governments signed up to and very few chose to abstain or even withdraw from is no longer enough. It says it says that the ambition needs to be wider if we, as a world, are to curb the impacts of the worst of climate.、Change. Change. Now, when we look at the headlines, we've been warned again that we have a limited opportunity to act. That the world is at a tipping point. That the time to act is now. I'm gleaning those very words from the headlines I read and I tweeted about this because we've heard those words. All before we know that climate change is real, we've acknowledged it, or at least most of us, in terms of governments have. Yet we still choose to lag so far behind because we think we can, when we can't. This isn't just about saving the planet; it's really about saving ourselves from ourselves, so that we, as humanity, can literally survive. And I was talking to a friend just before sitting down to record this podcast that. If the global powers today happen to live on small island states, I can guarantee you they'll be acting in a great hurry now to change their policies. Reportedly, North Korea is inviting Pope Francis to visit Pyongyang. I think about that because the Pope, as part from being a major figure in global faith, is of course. A person who has managed to find a place for himself in the political space. It's another story I'm following because of the implications this will have not only on Kim Jong Un's ability to keep his international engagement alive, but in turn how that could impact the deal to denuclearize that he's trying to construct with the United States and other key partners, including China. A nuclear-free Korean Peninsula will no doubt upgrade the entire world in terms of safety and security. And what we're hearing is that the invitation to the Pope will be relayed by South Korean leader Moon Jae-in when he meets with the Pontiff. The Vatican says, "Let's see." In London, Theresa May continues to be bogged down by the deal or no deal Brexit, but she has also appointed a minister for suicide prevention. It's a world first, and if I didn't happen to catch it on a television report, I would have missed it. It's very significant, and it was time for Mental Health Day. Eight hundred thousand people kill themselves every year, but there are ways through. I've spoken about this as part of my own health work, and the first step is to talk to someone, preferably to a health professional. But if you can't talk to anyone, that's the first step. So when I think about mental health or climate change or North Korea, I said this before, and I'll say it again: that the world as we know it has changed already, and that those who are slow to this realization risk being left behind. The Ability to adapt is very important. Whether you're a student, a mid-career professional, or someone who is very experienced, technology, expanding inequalities, and what we're seeing on the geopolitical landscape, which frightens many of us but also gives us hope, means that you need to be nimble to the changes and how they're relevant to where you live. That's my quick thought as we move into this podcast. Unlike previous weeks, where I tend to delve into a few different stories, I want to focus on just two. This is at large. 
your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. I'll move on to the IMF and its predictions for slower global growth next year, in part due to the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China. We've got an interview with Christine Lagarde on the wider picture, so stay with me for that. But as you know, if you listened to the last episode, I was in New York for the UN General Assembly. A lot of excitement there, and that continues. As you'll know by now, Nikki Haley has resigned as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. The Guardian described it as an announcement that stunned international diplomats, which I don't think is accurate because nothing these days should be interpreted as a surprise. And of course, life changes for people, for the governments they serve, for Ambassador Haley herself. And this is what she said about the world as she sees it today. Look at the two years. Look at what has happened in two years with the United States on foreign policy. Now the United States is respected. Countries may not like what we do, but they respect what we do. They know that if we say we're going to do something, we follow it through. And the president proved that. Whether it was with the chemical weapons in Syria, whether it's with NATO saying that other countries have to pay their share. I mean, whether it's the trade deals, which have been amazing, they get. That the president means business, and they follow through with that. Ambassador Haley was sitting next to President Trump, who said that he had no doubt that she would return in some shape or form to presumably a leadership role on the national or international stage. In the time she's been at the UN, a lot has indeed happened, as she said. The US has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement and also the Iran nuclear deal. She was asked to reflect on her time in New York. Just these two years at the UN. We've cut 1.3 billion in the UN's budget. We've made it stronger. We've made it more efficient. South Sudan, we got an arms embargo, which was a long time coming. Three North Korean sanctions、um, packages, which were the largest in a generation, done in a way that we could really work towards denuclearizing North Korea. We'll need to see what happens with North Korea and Iran. As she said, you're not going to be well liked by everyone, but Ambassador Haley is well liked and respected by many. That's clear if you speak to people from other countries who've worked with her. I thought she was an unusual choice as a former South Carolina governor when she was originally appointed, but she came in with a national profile from that position, and obviously she was highly regarded by the administration and by the people she served in her state. There is talk of who's going to replace her, what she's going to move on to next. I'm not going to get into that because I think time will reveal the answer to both of those questions. But I'm sure that for her, this resignation is well timed. She goes out on a high, and she has the space now to decide for herself what she'll pursue next if she hasn't already. And someone who knows her like you and I don't is Jonathan Wachtel. He's a foreign policy analyst who's worked directly for Haley, and this is what he had to share. It, it doesn't happen, happen overnight. This wasn't a rash decision. It, it's a decision that's expedient on a number of, for a number of reasons, or most mostly for her own uh, needs. Uh, she's a, a politician.、Uh, she has a, a lot of aspiration、um, and、uh, a lot of kick, and、uh, we'll be back. I mean, we'll we'll see her back here in whatever. Uh, way that she sees fit and is expedient as she tries to continue to serve and to be a political figure. 
The IMF meetings begin on October 12th on the Indonesian island of Bali. You'll note that some of those international gatherings are intentionally brought to less traditional settings in order to provide its participants with a less familiar and hopefully more stimulating environment to work within. The trade war that the US is engaged in with a number of countries is the talking point globally. So it's interesting that in Washington, the US Treasury has said that global growth and not global trade will be its priority in Bali. The IMF released its report in the run-up to the meeting. It's wound down growth for the US, China and worldwide. I interviewed Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the IMF, a couple of months ago and it was my first opportunity to meet her. We had about a half hour together, which was brief, but here are some personal observations on how she engages. Firstly, she's very open. She listens closely. She doesn't push a preset agenda, but she's also keen to be part of an inclusive discussion and to lead that on how to improve the state of the world today. You see that in the way she works with her staff. For example, she set up a daycare centre in the IMF building itself so that her colleagues can bring their children to work so they can pop down and see them during those work hours and know that they have a safe and nurturing environment of their own. In the same spirit, I really believe that she wants to provide as meaningful a space for the world as she does for the children of her own colleagues to solve its problems, not just economically, but with a strong eye to the inequality that we see emerging. In a new interview this week that was broadcast, she talked about the current challenges and provided a clear direction on where and how the IMF can moderate the discussion going forward. You know, we have always said at the IMF that uh, trade war, uh, trade tariffs are not help helpful uh, globally and uh, are likely to have negative consequences on growth. So we maintain that view. And we very much hope that reason will prevail and that all players will come to the table and will agree to improve the rules by which trade happens. What's interesting here is that this is the head of an organisation that essentially grew from the ashes of the Second World War and is a product of the ambitions of the leading powers of that time. Now, they were the US, Canada, Western Europe, Japan and Australia. No China, no India, no Indonesia and so on. The Bretton's Woods system established the rules that Lagarde is referring to by which we conduct our financial and commercial relations today. But that was more than 70 years ago when not only the world was different, but its needs and challenges were more so. So the obvious question here, and especially with the IMF meeting in Bali, is what does Lagarde propose putting forward? You know, those rules have to constantly be updated. Um, there is not enough uh, to actually um, free up and um, facilitate the trade of services. You know, in the old days, most of what was traded between countries was goods. And for the moment, what we are seeing is increased tariffs on goods. But the key uh, trade of the future will be services. And as we move into a more digital world where the future of work will also be different and manufacturing processes will evolve, uh, we need to constantly update those rules. 
So here's the head of the IMF talking about the need to update rules, and that's a promising sign in itself. Fair competition created not just by a few, but by everyone, is what Lagarde says is one way forward. We'll be keenly watching what happens in Bali, and if there's any indication that the economies that make up the IMF will take up her leadership's stance and follow through on it. You've been listening to At Large with James Chow. For more episodes, you can go to chinausfocus.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe at Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and more. Thanks for joining us.